0: This is K-A-O-S. You and I are listening to Chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Hello? Hi. Yes, Billy. I
1: hear radio waves in my head.
0: You hear radio waves in your head. Ah. Is there a request that you have tonight for Chaos?
1: Radio waves.
0: The atmosphere is thin and cold The yellow sun is getting old The ozone overflows flows with radio waves Astrophysics brings the news The and dishes give different views Are you confused? Radio waves Radio waves Radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. waves. Hello, my name's Brendan O'Brien, and welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. The title of today's podcast is Radio Astronomy 101, The Many Colours of Light, and What is an Electromagnetic Wave? Each session, we'll have co-presenters. We'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup. We'll have a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. So let's begin by crossing straight over to Tver in Russia and speaking with Professor Nadezhda Shervikov. Hello, Nadezhda.
1: Good morning, Brendan. Thank you very much. Spasiba. Today's episode is The Secret Life of Miss Ruby Payne Scott. The famous radio physicist Ruby Payne Scott was born in 1912 and died in 1981. She was a pioneer radio physicist and a fearless advocate for equal pay and the rights of women in the workplace, and until recently, she was one of science's unsung heroines. At 16, Ruby won a scholarship to Sydney University, and in 1933 she graduated with first-class honours in physics and mathematics, the third female physics graduate in the university's history. In 1930s and 40s in Australia, there were very few opportunities for female scientists like Ruby payne Scott. However, the manpower shortage brought on by World War II gave Ruby her lucky break. In June 1941, she and Joan Freeman became the first women physicists to be employed by the Radiophysics Laboratory of the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, the CSIR, at the University of Sydney, which later became the famous CSIRO. Their radar work was classified top secret and aimed to protect Australia's coastline using radars. Ruby and her colleagues jokingly said that they made their radars out of coat hangers and sticky tape. But I don't think it was too far from the truth. In those days, all women employed in the Australian Public Service were required to resign upon marriage. So, to keep her job, she kept her 1944 marriage to Bill Hull, a secret from her employer. Then after the war, her research group did some breakthrough research which Professor Sarah Madison last week on our podcast called Blue Sky Research. Ruby's group made the first sea cliff radio wave interferometer, in which an antenna, which was actually a used World War II radar, and they observed the sun at sunrise while measuring the interference coming from the direct radiation from the sun and the reflected radiation from the sea. The group were able to demonstrate that sunspots emit strong radio waves, and Ruby herself discovered what we now know as Type 1 and Type 3 solar bursts. One of Ruby's team members, the famous Joseph Pauzy, put a name to their groundbreaking work, radio astronomy, and we haven't looked back since. Their development of radio interferometry significantly improved the resolution of single radio telescopes, which in turn led to the construction of much more sophisticated radio telescopes, even improving on the achievements of the iconic Groth-Rieber, who we described and discussed last week. Another most important discovery by Ruby and her team was the surface temperature of the sun, Previously thought to be only 6000 degrees, they were able to accurately measure that the temperature of the sun's corona was well over a million degrees centigrade. On a personal note, apart from a passion for women's rights in the workplace, Ruby was also passionate about the independence and sharing of scientific research. She was a suspected communist. I've read her ASIO file, Brendan. It is rubbish, I can tell you. At the time, her political ideas were were deemed a security risk in Australia during the Cold War with my country. When her six-year secret was finally exposed in 1950, she was forced to retire as a permanent CSIRO staffer and was reinstated on a temporary basis. Ruby was a straight talker and she said this to the CSIRO. The present procedure with regard to married women is ridiculous and can lead to ridiculous results. Well said Ruby. In July 1951 with the birth of her first child imminent, Ruby was forced to leave the CSIRO and her research career was over. For the next 10 years, she devoted herself to raising her two children. Then later, Ruby took up a post as a science teacher. Ruby Payne Scott died on 25 May 1981. Her achievements are remembered in the CSI Rose Payne Scott Award. And the modern radio astronomy community will be forever in her debt. Thank you, Brennan. Back to you now. Thank you, Nadezhda.
0: Now on to our next segment. (coughs) Radio astronomy 101. The many flavors of light and exactly what is electromagnetic radiation? First, we have to define what a field is. And a field is a region of space that's influenced by a force that can act on any matter that's in that region. The two main sorts of fields we're concerned with here are electric fields and magnetic fields. Electromagnetic radiation consists of electromagnetic waves. And what these are is they're synchronized waves of electric and magnetic fields that travel at a speed of light through a vacuum or through space. And these two types of waves, the electric wave and the magnetic wave, act in phase with each other. That means when one is at a maximum, the other one is also at a maximum. And they're at 90 degrees to each other in space. Now, because it's often difficult to visualize such a description, I'll send you now to tinyearl.com forward slash Astrophys wave, all one word, all lowercase. Now, this is a quite lovely simulation. It's HTML5, so it will play on any device, and it's from edumediasciences.com. And it's very nice. You can change the frequency, you can change the wavelength, and see how that changes the nature of the wave that's traveling. So, that's at tinyurl.com forward slash astrophys wave all one word, all lowercase. Now, these waves always travel at the speed of light in a vacuum. It slows down in liquids and in the lenses of your spectacles, and that's why your glasses work. Now, initially, people thought that light travelled instantaneously, but in 1676, yes, that's 340 years ago, Ole Christensen Romer, demonstrated that light travels at a finite speed by studying the apparent motion of Jupiter's moon Io. Then, as we mentioned in the first episode of Astrophys, James Clerk Maxwell in 1865 proposed that light was an electromagnetic wave and therefore travelled at the speed C. And we've used that symbol, C, ever since to represent the speed of light. So it got measured over time and after centuries of increasingly precise measurements in 1975, we determined that light was traveling at almost 300,000 meters per second. Now the very cool thing about that is that since light is traveling at a constant speed, then if we know the frequency of the light, we can also work out the wavelength or vice versa. Because the formula is V, velocity, equals F frequency times lambda, which is the wavelength. V, in this case, is C. So the velocity of any wave, whether it's in the ocean, in a pond, in a rope, or traveling through space as a photon, it will always be velocity equals frequency times wavelength. So to summarise, light or any electromagnetic radiation is a series of waves travelling through space. These waves are both electric waves and magnetic waves. They travel together, they are in phase and they are running at 90 degrees to each other. They travel at the speed of light. Now, in the introduction to this episode, we said we were going to talk about the different colors of light, and we're going to go way beyond that, because light exists as a tiny little window in the giant electromagnetic spectrum. It turns out that X-rays are light, gamma rays are light, radio waves are light, the microwaves that heat up your morning tea are light. All electromagnetic waves are the same. The only thing that changes is their frequency and their wavelength. The speed stays the same. The electromagnetic nature of these waves stays the same. The way they propagate themselves and travel through space remains the same. But there's one very important thing to know about all of these different forms of light. They are the same, but their intensity changes with distance. Let's imagine I've got a butter gun and I want to butter my piece of toast. And I want to butter my piece of toast. So I move my butter gun exactly one meter away from my piece of toast and I butter my toast beautifully. Now, if I move my butter gun two meters away, if I double the distance, I can now butter four pieces of toast arranged in a two by two square. If I double the distance again and move my butter gun four meters away, yes, I can now butter 16 pieces of toast in a 4x4 grid. So the rule for the intensity of light, any form of light from gamma rays through x-rays, through radio waves, microwaves, to very long wavelengths that are used to communicate with submarines under the sea, all of these waves, the rule is the intensity varies directly with one over the distance It's called the inverse square law. And for those with any safety concerns, I can assure you that I have an open carry permit for my butter gum. Next up, what's up in the night sky this week with Professor Ian Musgrave. Good morning, Ian.
2: Good morning, Brendan. How are you on this cloudy morning?
0: Well, it's been cloudy for the past week or so here, Ian, and unfortunately we missed out on the Delta Aquarites over the last two nights because we were completely clouded out.
2: Yes, it's unfortunately same here. Can you tell us what happened this week at uni? week, Our courses started, I gave a couple of lectures, I spent a lot of time replying to emails, ordering more chemicals for the PhD and other students, reviewed grants, reviewed a paper or publication, dealt with yet another paper that uh, reviewers come back and say, oh, you've done all this work, let's do some more. <laughs> Thank you, reviewers. So it's it's been one of those weeks where you spend a lot of time typing things on computers, some fantastic images of neurons from one of the students has been working in our labs. That is very exciting work. Also, in the meantime, in non-astronomy news, you may have seen various breathless news pieces about how we've got a new drug for Alzheimer's and how the uh, bucket challenges caused a breakthrough in ALS research. This is relevant to uh, the astronomy because, of course, as uh, astronomers will be familiar with various breathless pieces of information going around about how this or that fantastic thing has been discovered in outer space and it actually hasn't. And it, it, we have a lot of problems with science, a lot of science communication. One of my uh, big passions is science communication. And two things we have to worry about is one, making sure we're making accurate statements, and b, making sure that we engage appropriately with the people who are going to be reading these things. In the case of Alzheimer's disease, the trial actually failed its main its main endpoint. For most of the people, the drug didn't work. But in a, in something called a, a subgroup analysis, there was a, a group of people who had never taken any other drug who had a good response to this drug but everybody else failed so the question is whether or not this only works for people that have been exposed to another drug is it going to be better than any of the other drugs that we have that are quite disappointing after a short time and so the the response was blown all out of proportion with the motor neuron disease press release as a result of funding from the bucket challenge to find another gene that's involved in a, a motor neuron disease but it's just one of another That we've already found, and so while it adds to the information, it is and the bucket challenge has been very valuable in uh, bringing this research along. It's not a breakthrough in the sense that people want something that will definitively say why motor neuron disease occurs in certain groups of people uh, and not others, and direct us to to a drug. So uh, this feeds into my day job because of course I put. Part of my research, I put chemicals onto dying nerve cells in dishes and try and uh, make them uh, live again or stop them dying. And even if I find something that works really, really well, the step from going from that to treating the disease is a very long road indeed. And I would be very remiss if I said extract of bees uh, likely cure for cancer. Um, so you've got to be very, very careful about what you're saying and how you're saying it.
0: Exactly. And that long term blue sky pure research, often we're looking at 5, 10, 15, 20 year timeframes. And what the internet tends to do is it tends to amplify small successes and certainly amplify small disasters.
2: Yes, it's, uh, especially with astronomy, at least 50% of the information uh, circling about astronomical information is about some form of astronomical induced disaster, most of which are uh, pure fantasy, but uh, it plays much better than we now possibly know a lot more about the origin of comets from the Rosetta mission or uh, the latest information from uh, one of the Mars orbiters is that they were able to do spectroscopy of these, uh, of the uh, seasonal gullies in Mars and quite a Big things we found on Mars is there what appears to be liquid making gullies during the summer, and it's probably due to carbon dioxide ice subliming rather. So that's very important information, but that's not going to race around the the uh, the, uh, blogosphere as or the social media as much as uh, pole flip occurring. July 30, 31st, or we will all die. You may have noticed it's July 31st and we haven't all died from a pulse and it hasn't occurred. But if I can um, bring it back to radio astronomy for a moment and uh, biology, the CAT scan that we use for doing detailed anatomical e- x-rays yeah. was based on an astronomical t- technique for integrating radio telescope signals to give images of what uh, it, it would be a conventional image from uh, radio signals. So uh, when you talk about blue sky, very few people would have gone, oh, yeah, radio telescopes, they'll be a- make us able to diagnose diseases better.
0: That's fantastic, Ian. Thank you.
2: That's great information.
0: Well, Next, we'll tell our listeners what's up in the night sky this week
2: what's up in the night sky this week is lots of planets. This is an excellent time for visual astronomers and we have all five bright planets lined up in the evening sky. This has happened twice we had it occur earlier in the year in February in the morning and now we have it in the early evening just at dusk and just after dusk and this is the first time it's happened since back in 2005 so we're getting a double treat this year uh, now while the morning one was interesting the the evening one this year is really really good and again this uh, we won't see another line up until 2018 in the evening and it won't be anywhere or all five planets and it won't be anywhere near as interesting as what we're going to be seeing so if this thursday half an hour and an hour after sun local sunset and probably best around 45 minutes when the sky is getting sufficiently dark so you can really bring up the fainter planet mercury on the horizon you'll see bright venus venus is really obvious it's the brightest thing on the horizon you can even see it about 10 minutes after the sun sets it's so bright but then across from venus is the thin crescent moon uh, really thin, uh, day-old uh, moon. And then in between the two is the bright star, Regulus, which won't look very bright, of course, low in the dusk, but you'll see the three together. And this is the start of what I like to call a planet dance, where initially the moon will climb the uh, the bright planets like a ladder, and then the bright planets themselves will start moving into various positions with other bright planets and stars, making for a very nice view. Now, listeners should also be aware that the Greek word planet uh, meant wanderer, and so we're going to see Venus, Mercury, Jupiter and Mars do a lot of wandering over the next week, night after night. You'll see the crescent moon moves away from Venus, and then just above Venus is another bright object, that's Mercury. On the 5th, you will see the thin crescent moon just above Mercury. And then on the 6th, the thin crescent moon will be just above Jupiter. And it'll be really close. It'll be less than half a lunar diameter from Jupiter. Not Fantastic. Very big, but it'll be less uh, less than half a lunar diameter. And if you've got a, a binoculars or a telescope, you'll be able to see them together quite easily. In fact, in a, you should be able to see Jupiter and its moons just below the crescent uh, moon, and that would be be a very good telescopic uh, uh, view. And while this is happening, Venus is climbing high in the sky, Mercury is climbing higher in the sky, and then the, then the Moon heads off towards Mars and Saturn. Now, if you raise your eyes higher above the western horizon, you'll see the constellation Scorpio. Within The constellation Scorpio at the moment looks like a back-to-front question mark. Now, in front of the constellation Scorpio at the moment is Mars. It's easily recognisable as a very bright red object. And then a bit further up is the bright red star Antares. And optically to the right of Antares is uh, a golden yellow object and that Saturn, forming a beautiful triangle. But you'll also see just in front of Mars is another brightish star. This is uh, Delta Scorpio, which also rejoices in the name of Deshuba. It's uh, also known as Delta Scorpios. Yep. As you watch over the next few days, Mars will come closer and closer to this star until on the 9th, they're very, very close together. less than half a lunar diameter apart or, uh, or a quarter of a finger width apart. So it'll look really, really amazing. And then for the rest of the week, Mars will pass Shuba and is heading towards the gap between Antares and Saturn. Now, that doesn't occur for several weeks now, but that will look really, really nice. So you've got this beautiful planet dance happening. So for the next week, Let's really hope that the skies remain clear so you can see all these wonderful changes in, in the uh, western sky. Thank you very much, and we might want to mention, because the, planet, uh, the planets are, are in uh, Scorpius, if you've got binoculars, if you sweep through Scorpius, you'll be able to see some really interesting things with binoculars.
0: Okay, and we'll also, at some stage, we need to talk about the Magellanic clouds.
2: Yep mention the, uh, set, the radio centre of the galaxy, uh, but we can do that uh, next week. Um, yes. We can do the Magellanic Clouds uh, a little bit later when they're a higher or one of them is higher in the sky.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, no worries. And, we will... uh,
2: and good viewing.
0: We've also got to mention, if you want to quickly mention now, what's coming up over the next month. You might want to mention the Perseids.
2: Yes, of course. We have the whole month of August uh, ahead of us. The planet dance will continue for the rest of August, uh, and with a spectacular conclusion when Mars and sorry, planet dance will continue over August with a spectacular conclusion on the 28th when Venus and Jupiter are incredibly close together with Mercury close by in the uh, evening. And, of course, uh, for the northern hemisphere, listeners and those in the northern parts of the southern hemisphere, we have the Perseids, which also occur uh, late in the month. And the Perseids have been predicted to have a bigger peak this year of, uh, with a zenithal hourly rate of 150 meteors the hour and I'll give viewing details and discussion of that in a subsequent.
0: Yes, no doubt there'll be some all-sky cameras online somewhere in the northern yeah. hemisphere, so that even if we're here in the south, we'll probably be able to watch the Perseids live anyway.
2: Yes, yes, and of course for those in Darwin and Cairns you'll be able to see a, a, a very good display as well. So, yes, the, on the advent of the online all-sky camera has been a, a gift to this astronomical community who deal with the dreaded clouds.
0: Very good. Well, thank you very much once again, Ian.
2: No worries. Thank you for having me on.
0: Talk and, next uh, week clear bye skies. now. Next up, the news Jupiter's great red hotspot may explain atmospheric mystery. A new study of Jupiter published today in Nature has found an unusual spike in temperatures above the Great Red Spot. While generally the upper atmosphere is around 500 degrees centigrade, measurements taken using NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility in Hawaii have found temperatures soar to around 1,300 degrees above the Great Red Spot. The first thing we thought was, oh, great, another thing we can't explain, said co-author Dr. James O'Donoghue from the Center for Space Physics at Boston University but after a process of elimination, Dr. O'Donoghue and colleagues concluded the upper atmosphere above a great red spot was being heated from below by turbulence. The Great Red Spot is a storm two to three times the size of Earth with winds that tear around at 480 kilometres an hour in an anti-clockwise direction. The surrounding atmosphere, by contrast, moves in the opposite direction. If you're stirring a cup of tea to the right continuously so it's got its own flow, but then you stir it the other way, you get a lot of sloshing around. And that's basically what the Great Red Spot is doing in the atmosphere, Dr O'Donoghue said. He and colleagues said shear created between the storm winds and the atmosphere would create huge amounts of turbulence in the form of gravity waves and acoustic or sound waves, which vibrate molecules in the air and heat them up. NASA's Juno spacecraft, which arrived in orbit around Jupiter on July 4, may also help scientists piece together the puzzle of Jupiter's atmosphere by providing data on what is happening beneath the clouds. That was taken from abc.net.au, Science News. Musical Universe by Jenna Levin, Songs from Outer Space. Part 1 of Musical Universe featuring Janna Levin, physicist and astronomer at Barnard College at Columbia University, is available online. You can listen to gravity waves and pulsars via tinyearl.com forward slash Astrophys pulsar, all one word, all lower case. Read more from Big Picture Science blog. Astronomers find new type of binary star. This is from Sci-News.com. Astronomers announced today that they have discovered a new type of binary star in which a rapidly spinning white dwarf star sweeps powerful beams of particles and radiation over its companion red dwarf star, causing it to pulse across almost the entire electromagnetic spectrum from the UV to radio. In May 2015, amateur astronomers in Europe came across a star system that was exhibiting behavior unlike anything that they had ever encountered. Follow-up from an international team of amateur and professional astronomers led by the University of Warwick on several telescopes, the NASA ESA Hubble, ESO's VLT... The William Herschel and the Isaac Newton Telescope in the Canaries. The Australian Telescope Compact Array and NASA's Swift Satellite revealed its nature. The star system, called AR Scorpii, lies in the constellation of Scorpius, approximately 380 light-years from Earth. It comprises a white dwarf star the size of our planet, but 200,000 times more massive. And it rotates around a cool M-type star, a red dwarf, one-third the mass of the Sun orbiting one another every 3.6 hours. In a unique twist, AR Scorpio is exhibiting some brutal behavior. To read more go to tinyurlcom astrophys binary. All our tinyurl links are all one word and all lowercase. Meanwhile in Australia the Murchison Widefield Array Radio Telescope looks into a supernova's past. By using low radio frequency observations and spectral modelling, astronomers have discovered new information about the closest and brightest supernova ever viewed from Earth, even though the object actually collapsed nearly three decades ago. A global group of researchers led by experts from ICRA, the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research, used the Murchison Wide Field Array in a remote part of a West Australian desert to analyse what is now known as supernova remnant 1987A, in frequencies of between 72 megahertz and 230 megahertz, the lowest frequency observations of the object ever collected. This supernova was found about 30 years ago by an astronomer who noticed something unusual suddenly appearing in one of the Magellanic clouds. Lack of radio interference is a key to successful observations of this type. Kellingham and his colleagues chose to use the Murchison Wide Field Array because of its remote location in the Australian outback, which was free from FM radio interference, something that study co-author and former Castro director Brian Geisler, explained was of vital importance. Nobody Nobody knew what was happening at low radio frequencies because the signals from our own Earthbound FM radio drown out the very faint signals from space, he said in a statement. Now, by studying the strength of a radio signal, astronomers for the first time can calculate how dense the surrounding gas is and thus understand the environment of the star before it died. The Murchison Array is turned digitally, not physically. And by turning the MWA array of spiders towards the supernova remnant, which is located in the large Magellanic Cloud, the researchers were able to detect extremely faint, low-frequency hisses emanating from its location. While previous studies were limited to when the star was in its final blue supergiant phase, the new observations allowed the researchers to observe it in its red supergiant phase. We'll be doing a whole ep on the MWA, incidentally. We're just looking for a victim, I mean, an expert to talk to. Read more about this story by Chuck Bedner at www.redorbit.com. Juno turns a corner, heading back to Jupiter. NASA's Juno spacecraft is halfway through the first of its two capture orbits and now on the way to make its first close pass of a giant planet. The science mission is designed to provide clues as to Jupiter's formation and evolution by analysing atmosphere and the physics of the planet's powerful magnetic field. Mission scientists can barely disguise their impatience. For five years we've been focused on getting to Jupiter. Now we're there. And we're concentrating on beginning dozens of flybys of Jupiter... To get the science we're after, said Scott Bolton, Juno Principal Investigator at Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio. But they will get a taster of the data to come later in this orbit when Juno skims 4,200 kilometers above Jupiter's clouds on the 27th of August. When Juno arrived at a planet on 4 July, all its scientific instruments were turned off to simplify spacecraft operations during the orbit insertion maneuver. Everything will be functioning this time as scientists test systems ahead of the serious science orbits to follow. Having reached the furthest point in its first capture orbit of Jupiter, it is heading back now towards the giant planet, this time with all its scientific instruments operational. This is the first of two long orbits the spacecraft is making after travelling five years from Earth. Each long orbit takes nearly two months, but after that, Juno will fire its engines again to enter the much shorter science orbits. Read Bill Condi's full report on Juno in cosmosmagazine.com. Radio astronomy reveals the brightest thing in our universe. In 1959, a rather unusual radio source was heard coming from a star, the only issue being that it wasn't a star. The reason was that its spectrum didn't match with the regular spectrum a star normally shows. Radio, infrared and optical light was being emitted from a large-scale jet. These large-scale jets were observed and found to be peculiar in nature, These large-scale jets were observed and found to be peculiar in nature, as they can only be emitted by a jet of charged particles moving at relativistic speeds, that is, near the speed of light. The object... 3C273 has been studied in detail by Kitt Peak National Observatory and it shows a huge jet coming from this object. The object 3C273 was at a staggering distance of 2 billion light years away. To give you a comparison, our nearest neighbouring galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy is just 1.7 million light years away from us. To give out a power output of about 10 to the power of 40 watts from such an astounding finding distant met just One thing, this is one of the brightest objects in the universe. The quasar 3C273 looked staggeringly beautiful when viewed through the VLBI radio telescope system, giving us insights into the massive black hole at its center and the cloud of intense light spurting out from a disk of particles moving almost at the speed of light. You can read more from Paris Gopani at universediary.wordpress.com. And to finish up, as mentioned by Dr. Ian Musgrave earlier in the show, the Perseids are coming up here in August, especially for our Northern Hemisphere listeners. Now, even if it's cloudy and you can't get outside at night, you can still listen to the Perseid meteor shower using a simple FM radio setup. To find out how to do it, go to tinyearl.com forward slash astrophysmeteor. And that's from skycan.ca. Good night, all. We'll see you next week. Radio (laughs) Wave!